That's it. And uh, turn with me to Genesis 25. Lots of names in this one. <laughs> Need a drink first. This is God's holy word. Let's hear it. And we're beginning in verse 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Genesis 25. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hedad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael. These are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died. He was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? She went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The other, excuse me, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. He was exhausted, and Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright. Now, Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The reading of God's holy word. Tonight we're looking at these genealogies of these two men, of Ishmael and Isaac, and uh, we'll also look at this important story from the early lives of Jacob and Esau. But the first thing we see here is uh, this record of Ishmael and his descendants. 
We heard about him in the previous passage, of course. He came back to join Isaac as they buried their father, Abraham, after his death. And now here in this passage, we see uh, what became of Ishmael, or at least of his offspring. He had um, 12 sons who became 12 tribes. And uh, this isn't included here just as a curiosity. Um, it's not just a little, uh, little fact of Scripture. It is um, significant. It, it means something. This is God showing us, again, his faithfulness to his promises. These 12 sons who became 12 tribes were fulfilling God's promise to Abraham. God told him he would bless Ishmael. Ishmael would be blessed with many blessings. They would be temporal blessings, though, and that's what we see here. God kept his promise. So that's the real significance of this genealogy here. It is a good reminder to us that God is faithful. He keeps his word. He always keeps his word. He is completely trustworthy in all that he says. There's one big theme that we've seen so far in Genesis, this. God is faithful. And he shows us that so that we'll put our faith in him. He wants us to trust in him. He wants us to live by faith. He wants us to, to live in a dependent way, depending on him, looking to him, relying on him. That's the message of all the scriptures. Well, Ishmael was a man of, uh, uh, a man who was blessed by God, but not in the way we might normally think. He's blessed, but not with salvation, not with faith. He's not part of the covenant line. Uh, he's got abundant blessings, though. God blessed him with all these descendants. Back in Genesis 17, God said, As for Ishmael, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly, and he will become the father of 12 princes. I will make him a great nation. So it all happened just like God said. And these were men of, um, of, of significance in the world. But really, that's, that's it. That's where their significance stopped. They had temporal blessings, earthly blessings, just as God promised. But they did not have a living relationship with the Lord. Look at verse 18. Ishmael, uh, we're told, lived a, a good, long life. He lived to be 137 years old, and then he died. He was gathered to his people. Um, he died. His descendants then, were told, settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. And then we have that little phrase, he settled over against all his kinsmen. Uh, most of the commentators think that last phrase means that Ishmael's descendants were hostile toward all their kinsmen all their relatives, even um, Abraham's descendants, all their kinsmen, they just had no peace with anybody. What a sad thing that is to hear. And even more sad, this is really the last thing we hear about Ishmael and his descendants. They were hostile. They were blessed by God, with strength, position in the world, but they had no peace with God or with man. They enjoyed God's gifts, not the giver. It's an important reminder for us. We need to seek more than just earthly blessings. God himself is the greatest blessing that we can have 
Nothing else in this world is worth anything without the Lord. Verses 19 to 26, then we shift to Isaac, his descendant. Another theme that we see unfolding in Genesis, uh, we see again here, and that is that God tests his people, tests the faith of his people. He did that over and over again with Abraham and Sarah, and he does it again here with Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac was 40 when he married Rebekah. I don't know about you, but when I read the account earlier, I thought, oh, they're youngins. They're, these are like uh, in their 20s or something, but no, he's in his 40s. And he was 60 by the time they actually became parents 20 years later. And uh, history repeats itself. Rebecca was barren, just like Sarah. The same test God gives to Rebecca, just as he had done with Sarah. They have to endure the same test of their faith. They had to wait long upon the Lord. Now think about that. Abraham, probably Sarah, uh, surely would have told Isaac about what that was like, how long they had to wait for him, how they longed to have him. And finally, after so many years, the Lord blessed them. All those years they had to wait and keep trusting in God's promise and wait and wait and wait for him to fulfill it. Isaac most surely learned from his parents how to trust in the Lord through that story, through his story. And so that's what he did here. Verse 21, we see his faith. He prayed. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Such a short sentence, but so sweet. Prayed for his wife. And the Lord granted his prayer. His prayer. Rebecca conceived. So they waited on the Lord, and in time God answered. Not only did he answer that prayer, but he blessed Rebecca with twins, Twin sons, and uh, they were active in her womb during her pregnancy, and it seems that they were so active that she got anxious about it. So the children struggled together within her. <laughs> I wonder what that must have been like. She wondered what was going on. Why is this happening to me? And so she goes to the Lord. She inquired of the Lord. She sought the Lord. Lord, what is going on? What is this all about? She got the impression that this was out of the ordinary, and it seems this was not an ordinary pregnancy. These boys were moving. They were very active, so much so that she was, uh, she was anxious, uneasy about it. The Lord answered and revealed that he had a very special purpose for these two boys. And he said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you that will be separated. One will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. He said, you're going to be the mother of two nations. Two nations are in your womb. But the emphasis here really is on the idea that they will be separate. They're brothers, of course, but they're going to be separate. They're going to be different, as different as night and day. And of course, that was true. But this doesn't really refer to, you know, how different their dispositions were. It seems to be a spiritual difference, a spiritual separation. And that's something we have seen previously in the book of Genesis. The two seeds, the seed of the serpent, seed of the woman, it's that spiritual distinction. And God said, one will be stronger than the other. Think about that and you wonder which one. Hmm. You might think Esau was going to be the strong one because perhaps physically he was. In the story, he seems like the tough guy, the, the burly mountain man, uh, a wild man outdoorsman, but it seems this doesn't refer to him. He's not the stronger one. This isn't about physical strength. God's talking about spiritual, spiritual strength. In that sense, Jacob 
and his descendants are going to be far stronger than Esau. And his, Jacob's descendants are Israel. And ultimately, Christ and his Esau's descendants are the Edom. God also says the older will serve the younger. Now we hear this so many times, we don't even think much about it because we've heard this story over and over. But this is a surprise. This is a big shocker to hear this. It certainly um, would have been uh, to this young mother. The older will serve the younger. What? That's unheard of. Certainly was in that day. The oldest son was the one who inherited the birthright. He became the leader of the family. He received the blessing of the father. He was the heir. That's how it worked. The older didn't serve the younger. The younger served the older. God says, not in this case. Rebecca, your older child will serve younger. Must have been stunned, perplexed. The apostle Paul says some things about this. He comments on this. He says, Jacob and Esau are an example of God's sovereignty and election. In Romans 9, Paul's writing there about why so many of the Jewish people were rejecting Jesus Christ as their Messiah. People were wondering, so many were wondering, if God had forsaken, broken his promises to Israel. You remember that passage in Romans 9? Paul says his heart is broken for his brethren, uh, his Jewish brethren, because they were rejecting their, their long-awaited Savior. But then he says in verses 6 to 8 in chapter 9, it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. And he continues and says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And again, he's talking about the, the Jewish people rejecting Christ. And he says, listen, yes, the Jews are Abraham's offspring physically. They're in his family tree, but that doesn't make them true children of Abraham. Being Jews physically doesn't make them children of God. Spirit, that spiritual line that Paul is talking about. That's what he means when he says, not all who are descended from Israel who belong to Israel. You can be a, a spiritual descendant of Abraham and not be a Jew at all. Case with most of us. What matters is that you have faith, faith like Abraham. Paul says, through Isaac, your offspring be named. Remember, that's what God said to Abraham back when Abraham asked God to let Ishmael be the heir. He said, oh Lord, let Ishmael walk before you. God said, no, no, Abraham, I'm not going to give you, um, give the promises to Ishmael. I'm going to give you a son with Sarah, just like I've said. You're going to name him Isaac. He is the one I'm promising you. And I will establish my covenant with him. And so way back then, there was God's sovereign election at work. It wasn't the older child then either. Ishmael was the older. Isaac, there again, the older served the younger. So this isn't a brand new thing. And Paul keeps going. And he writes of Rebekah and Isaac. And he says, when Rebekah had conceived children by Isaac... Though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older 
will serve the younger. Paul's saying it was God's purpose to choose Jacob, not Esau. And it wasn't about which one was born first. It wasn't about which one was better than the other. It didn't have anything to do with either of those things. It was all about God's sovereign will, his purpose, his choosing. He chooses who will be his children, even between these two brothers in the same womb. Look at verses 24 to 26. We do see some differences between these brothers, Esau and Jacob. Rebekah gave birth. Esau came out first, and he was very different looking. He looks like he's got a red fur coat on, born. So they name him Esau, which means hairy. Jacob came out with his hand grasping the heel of Esau. So his name is fitting as well. Uh, his name is a play on words um, with the word heel. The name can also mean supplanter. And that is fitting because he turns out to be that kind of guy. He's a deceiver, a supplanter. Even at birth, he's trying, it seems, uh, as it were, to get his way. Um, even then, before he even leaves the womb, he's trying to grab Esau's heel, trying to trying to make sure he's the firstborn. It'll be a sign of things to come between these two. And then lastly, we see this incident um, in their lives, the lives of these two brothers that shows um, their character. Really, we get to know them pretty well through this little portion of Scripture. We get to know a lot about a person by some of the choices that they make, and we see uh, the choices these two brothers make here in this passage. Neither one comes out looking very good, uh, after this episode of the birthright, and neither did the parents. We're told Esau was a, a skillful hunter, was a man of the field. Jacob, rather, was a quiet man, dwelt among the tents. So one is an outdoorsman. Jacob was one who stayed closer to home. This doesn't necessarily mean that Jacob was uh, uh, weak uh, or uh, wimpy or something. It just he, Commentators... Uh, some have said he's more of a, uh, a businessman. That's who he is. Probably handling the business aspects of the flocks and herds. So not necessarily a, a manly man versus a, a someone who's a, sort of a sissy. But they were very different. You see very different interests, very different priorities. But Jacob was motivated. He had aspiration of to be the leader of the household, it seems. He wants it. He wants it badly enough to cheat his brother to get it. Esau had that responsibility by birth, but it seems he doesn't care about it. He didn't value it. He'd just rather be out outdoors, hunting, out in the fresh air. Nothing's wrong with that. But you get the idea that he ought to be preparing himself for these greater responsibilities that are about to become his. But he doesn't seem to want that. It almost seems like he's shirking his responsibility as the firstborn. So we got one man who's willing to lie and cheat and be a real snake to get what he wants. The other just wants to be out having fun rather than preparing himself and taking care of his responsibilities. So we're getting to know their character with just a few short lines here. And the parents, again, they don't come out smelling like roses either. They both picked their favorites, we're told. Esau was Isaac's favorite. Jacob, Jacob was Rebekah's favorite. Pretty clear. It's not good. Favoritism is destructive. It 
leads to rivalry, it leads to resentment, and it surely did with these men as well. Now, the birthright belonged to the firstborn. That was normal. It was a given. But it could be lost. Uh, it could also be traded away. There are records of that being done, examples in history uh, of uh, birthright being traded away. One brother uh, traded away his birthright to another brother in exchange for uh, some sheep. That sounds silly, but uh, it was usually people who were very poor who did something like that. Uh, Someone wouldn't do that uh, for nothing, usually, People who are poor might do that out of necessity. And so that gives us a little bit of a perspective on what Jacob and Esau did. This wasn't really out of necessity for them. These were not poor men. They were wealthy. And Jacob's offer was not an offer of sheep or cattle um, that could be really important to sustain a family, like it might with a Poor family. Now he offered a bowl of soup. Just a measly, pitiful bowl of soup. One meal. Of course, Esau was hungry. He was famished. He was very foolish to take this deal. This shows that he had no sense, no regard for his birthright and the value of it. This was a hugely significant thing to have this birthright. And not just because uh, of the high position that uh, it brought within the family, And the wealth, this meant considerable wealth here within this family, but also this is about God's covenant more than anything. He's in line as the heir of God's covenant, but he could care less. Esau doesn't value the things of God. One commentator said, Esau was a man who valued the present over the future, the material rather than the invisible, the body rather than the spirit. The momentary satisfaction of physical desires were more important to him than the approval of God. Esau comes away looking like a godless, foolish man. But we are tempted in these ways too, aren't we? Tempted to value material things over spiritual things, earthly things over eternal things. That's something we need to think about. What do you value more? And Jacob was ruthless in scheming to get what he wants. I mean, it, it just looks brutal. You read the story and the way he, um, the way he stuck it to his brother here. <laughs> he takes matters into his own hands here in this way. He's trying to make things go his own way. He's, he's relying on his, his own scheming, his own efforts. No praying. There's no relying on God. It's a temptation for us to live that way. To live in a self-reliant way. When we do that, we're not walking by faith. We're not relying on the Lord. Living as if there is no God. It's kind of what it looks like here with Jacob. He's living in a godless way. Trying to take control. Trying to make it happen his way. Good for us to examine ourselves in light of what we see these men doing. <laughs> Neither of them are examples for us to follow. These are negative examples. Examples not to follow. Now, there's more to this story, this birthright story. It's here to make a point. Again, the point is about God's electing grace. These were not good guys. Neither one of these men. Both of them were miserable sinners and bad examples. God did not choose Jacob because he was the better of the two. 
He wasn't. As I read it, it almost looks like he's the worst of the two. He's, he's the snake out of those two. God chose Jacob. He chose him, and then he changed him. He made him into a man of faith, faithfulness. And that's how God works. We need to remember that. He chose us not because of anything good in us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose us before we'd done anything good or bad. He chose us. There was nothing good at all to foresee in us. And then he changes us. He saves us. He begins his good work of changing us. He designed salvation that way so that no one could ever boast. All the praise has to go to God for his grace and his love and choosing us. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's hard for us to believe that God would save us that way, that he would just choose us and save us totally apart from anything good that we contribute. We think it ought to be different. We think we ought to choose him. We think we ought to earn his favor. It does not work that way. God is the one who does the choosing. And in time, by his grace, we choose him. That's only because he works that faith in us. And then he does his good work in us, brings us along, transforms us into the image of his son, making us like Christ. Even our efforts at sanctification, they flow from the grace of his Holy Spirit in our lives. So we have nothing at all to boast about. We ought to be the most humble people in the world. It's all his own purpose to lavish his grace upon those that he has chosen. It brings great glory to him. Save the Lord. Praise him for his grace. Let's pray together. God and Father, we, we bow before your absolute sovereignty, and we acknowledge that you are Lord. You are the ruler of heaven and earth. You rule over all your creatures and over our lives. So we pray that you would apply your word to our hearts that we've heard tonight. We pray that you'd teach us to, to uh, seek you in prayer and depend upon you. Teach us that your ways are, are not like our ways. Teach us to trust in you Humble our hearts, Lord. Teach us not to rely upon our own wisdom and uh, uh, strength and scheming. Uh, help us, Lord. Make us, form us to be the godly men and women that you want us, as you worked with your people of old. We pray that you do it in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name.